Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. PPIs totally disrupt your gut flora, which means that these poor little babies, you're on something that, one, it's super hard to come off. It's really hard to wean off PPIs. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life podcast. This is your host, Krista Bigler, private practice integrative nutritionist, helping people across the U.S. reverse digestive issues, eczema, and autoimmunity via phone and video consult. To learn more, visit lessstressednutrition.com. Now, on to the show. Okay, today on The Less Stress Life, we have Dr. Valerie Jacobs, who holds a degree in medicine and a PhD in pharmacology with an emphasis in neurology and immunology from Dartmouth College. She completed her residency with Harvard Medical School at Boston Children's Hospital while working in the emergency department. She's a board-certified physician and a member of the Integrative Medicine Section of the American Board of Pediatrics with advanced training in Reiki and medical acupuncture. She currently works in pediatrics private practice with a focus using a holistic, integrative approach, and she believes in partnering with families and investigating all the aspects of the patient's life, creating a whole health approach to understanding medicine and a safe, effective, complementary treatment for patients. Welcome, Dr. Jacob. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I, it, I think it's kind of fun. People actually ask me a lot, how do you yes. find guests? And I say, um, all over the place. <laughs> sometimes people <laughs> request, sometimes I go to a conference and I say, I would love to talk to that person or I meet yeah. someone. And Valerie's email just landed in my inbox one day because she found the podcast. And I, she said, Hey, you yeah. don't have a lot talking about pediatrics of, you know, and digestive issues. And I'm like, I'm happy to discuss that because that's something that we see in practice. And I work with kids as well. So I'm happy to have that conversation. Love to have that conversation. A lot of smart, smart, savvy moms listen to this podcast. So we're really excited that you want to talk to us about this. Um, awesome. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. So let's talk about how we, um, how you got to where you are a little bit, because you, I think when I was reading your, this was the bio I read, but I was reading a little bit more about you on your website and it looked yeah. like maybe you did a little teaching before you um, kind of went to med school maybe. And mm-hmm. then also I see you train, you have other types of training. How does that happen? How do you decide that you're going to do this other training? How do you decide you're going to become integrative? What's the turning point there? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and I think like many of us, it just kind of falls that way from either personal experience or patient experience. And um, my background is very basic. I have a PhD in um, immunology and started on that track, really doing kind of the basic research. And from a patient perspective, I was mostly seeing early, early on in my training 
that, wow, kids and people are a lot more complicated than we think, and, and the immune system is way more complicated than we think, and, and we're doing all of these medications, and sometimes they work, but sometimes they're causing more trouble, and I felt like as a provider, sometimes you're just putting out fires. And really the reason we get into this and, and working with, with families and all of you out there is because we want to heal you. We want you to be your best selves and we want to get to the point where, you know, not to use the cliche word, but the root cause of things. I wanted to get to a point where we're not putting out fires. And I think the way to do that, we really have to go, go back to, to our basics, which is our body, our inflammation and nutrition. And in, and I think we're getting there, but in traditional medicine, that's still not always um, part of the general assessment and workup. And so that's what made me start researching. Okay, well, what are the clinical evidence and what is the, the, the protocols? And, of course, still using evidence-based medicine of going back and doing these type of approaches that are safe, that can be used with other medications, and that can really help children at the very beginning stages and maybe even not get them to that point where we're constantly putting out fires. And, you, um, and so that's, and then one thing led to another. <laughs> yeah. And so you actually found some trainings that, that were already there for you. Yeah. It wasn't as hard to get into yeah. as maybe you thought. No, no, not at all. And there are other amazing people, you know, doing research on this and, and making it part. And I noticed that I started applying this even as early as my early days in the hospital, you get amazing results. Kids would do better. Families were happier. And it was wonderful. And so I, I just started doing this more and more and more. And essentially, it became really the foundation to my practice. Mm -hmm. And now you're in private practice. So you were in the emergency okay. department at Boston Children's, which gave mm -hmm. you a great breath yep. of seeing all the things, all the things. Mm -hmm. And now you're in private practice seeing um, yep. clients individually. And so, or in a, in a better setting where it's not so like you can follow them a little bit longer so term. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. So and in, in getting to do what you love. So what are the things that present your clinic most often? What are the most common things you see? Yeah, so I see obviously um, sick kids, especially needs, and I also just do primary, general primary care. But the top three or four things I see in general, kids coming in, belly pain, right? Kicking anything, um, behavioral issues, mm -hmm. um, and then of course bowel habits. Constipation is a big one, and then uh, when the little ones sit up, reflux or trouble with with food and digestion in the infants. Those would be my big four. Mm -hmm. um, pain, behavioral issues, bile habits, and what would you call the last mm -hmm. one? I would say just spit up in babies. Like oh, we, we call it reflux, but you know, mm -hmm. it's not always, always reflux, but mm -hmm. that might be what they come in for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. How common is, um, is the spit up or reflux and, and what, at what point do you find it more troubling where it's a little bit outside of like, Oh, it's just a little bit of spit up. Yeah, good question. And so about 50% of all babies, these are kids under the age of 12, are going to have some kind of actual um, reflex. I usually tell them if they're a happy spit-upper, they're growing and doing fine, it's not a problem at all because at that age, part of it is your gut motility is just not even developed yet. They don't have a great... Um, they don't have a great way to keep that food down. Everything's gravity at that age. And so food is coming up and down all the time and totally common for it to come out of the mouth. 
when it becomes an issue is when it becomes upsetting for the infant. So if you're seeing a lot of uh, fussiness, um, increased gassiness, trouble with bowel movements, Certainly, if you're spitting out so much that you're not digesting and you see changes in weight, that's pretty extreme when it gets to that point. But those are all reasons that I start targeting it. Okay. What did you say the percentage was that you see that? 50%. 50 percent actually pretty high. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty good chance. Uh, just as much mm-hmm. of a chance of having an issue than not. Okay. So you said gravity is a big piece. And sometimes I talk to people about, you know, sometimes there's a structural piece or a nutritional type piece or an emotional piece. But I, I think about with reflux, do you, do you go over structural interventions at that point? Like literally, do you go over, Hey, like let's sit up after meals longer or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Is that common? Exactly. Totally. So always you want to do like a minimal approach first, right? And yes, we always start with a basic, okay, let's do, usually we'll do a combination. So sit up at least 30 minutes after the feed. And then I also recommend splitting the feed. So make, make little breaks. So pause maybe twice in the feed, do a burp, and then let the infant um, eat again. And then keep upright for 30 minutes. And then in between when you're practicing tummy time or playing with your infant, uh, there's some basic, which I'm, I'm happy to um, give you two basic infant massage moves I teach too to kind of help that bowel movement start going and get the gas moving. And that's where we start. Mm-hmm. So that's where you start. And then are there some other things that you use? Like what are some other interventions you may or may not use with someone with reflux? Like do you go straight to – do you – is it really common for someone to um, end up on reflux medications or PPIs? And and what does that look yeah. like for kids? Good question. I do think uh, that historically, that's a very common thing that, that pediatricians do, because especially if you have an association with fussiness, the thought is, ah, it must be pain. Ah, must be pain from all this acid. Okay, we're going to put them on a medication that stops that. First of all, to be really clear, it's not always the acid. You can have pain and discomfort, and the actual, um, for the kids that have been scoped, the actual kids that have true acidity issues is rare. So oftentimes they're using this not even an, an acid problem. Secondly, as we unfortunately now know, right, sometimes we use these for years, and then we figure out, ooh, wasn't that, wasn't that great for you? PPIs totally disrupt your gut flora, which means that these poor little babies you're on something that, one, it's super hard to come off. It's really hard to wean off PPIs. And, two, you can change their gut flora, leading to increased things of um, th- like SIBO, small intestinal bowel overgrowth, uh, which causes lots of problems. I see that in toddlers later in life, um, as well as other issues, which makes you prone to things like leaky gut, which makes you prone to things like pretty bad food allergies. So that all ties together. So as a rule of thumb, I never, and I think more and more practitioners are hopefully going this way, I never use the PPI. There's so many things we can do before that. Uh, for example, often I look at, okay, digestion, How what is actually causing the reflux? Are we having reflux because things aren't moving as far down as they need to or things kind of get stuck or things going slow? Do we need to work on the motility of the food going through? Or are you getting a lot of gas production or reaction because you're having a reaction to something in the food. Um, and in that case, I often will do food elimination with mom if they're breastfeeding 
or try experimenting with different formulas if they're on formulas. And my success rate has been pretty high doing those simple interventions and never needing to go to a PPI. Mm -hmm. I was doing a lot of research recently for... um... Uh, I was writing about uh, for about eczema and I was surprised at the number of if you change to a hydrolyzed or basically a pre-digested formula that can clear eczema very quickly in a lot of kids. Like it was a very, very yeah. high percentage. And I'm sure you see the exact same thing because really if you're not able to digest things perfectly because things are a little mature or whatnot, adding a PPI or reducing the stomach acid, which helps break down things, uh, which help can help down, break down proteins, isn't going to help if that's the no. cause, cause problem. Do you give no. enzymes in children at all? So hydrolyzed formula makes sense because then it's already kind mm-hmm. of like already pre-done. Um, but do you ever give enzymes to kids or do you kind of try to avoid that as well? So really good question. And I do. I have a one little infant who's two now who um, we've been working on some um, inflammation and some essentially really bad gut gas that she's had really since she was six months of age after getting tons of rounds of amoxicillin um, from another pediatrician with repeat ear infections and unfortunately kind of messed up her gut and then she mm-hmm. started getting eczema and then she started getting other issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we did food elimination, which works pretty well. And then when they're that young, I don't treat kind of um, – bacterial overgrowth or gut flora abnormalities with antibiotics, but can avoid it when they're infants. And so we do a lot of you know, prebiotics. We do a lot of food allergies. But in this um, infant, she was still having a lot of really bad gas. Uh, and really, I think what it was coming down to is she was still having trouble digesting. And she was old enough that we couldn't obviously do a different formula. She was starting to eat food. And so we did end up doing some digestive enzymes with her and it worked beautifully mm-hmm. and it did end up really helping get that gas under control and the pain yeah. better. That sounds like a classic story I hear all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to go on antibiotics for XYZ thing. You know, they're a good life-saving thing, but they can be, yes, yeah. I mean, they can really damage what's going on in the gut microbiome. And then I always say we're growing weeds in the microbiome, sort of when you're talking about small intestinal bacteria overgrowth or, you know, we didn't talk about large intestinal bacteria overgrowth. That's a thing I see a lot. Mm -hmm. So we've got a lot of weeds growing. And so how do we pluck the weeds, rebalance the weeds, make it so there's a very nice lawn? Um, Because if there's weeds going on, it's going to impair digestive ability. And so that is so common and it presents as eczema all the time, right? Which is the the condition that I see all the time. So we definitely see an association. Um, Something we were talking about off air was, and I'm hoping, Mm -hmm. I'm really hoping. So not too long ago, I had a mom call me and her daughter had a lot of fatigue. Um, She's a teenager, a lot of fatigue, ferritin Mm -hmm. or iron levels were extremely low to the point this girl is not getting Mm. out of bed. So anyway, uh, after talking to mom, I'm like, uh, that doesn't just usually happen. So what Mm -hmm. was going on in the gut or, you know, we're having heavy bleeding uh, menstrual or something else. So anyway, come to find out that this little girl, this girl who was not so little anymore, she's a teenager now, she's been on a an acid reflux med since mm-hmm. she was a child um, and just left on it forever. Oh, and I'm God. like, oh my gosh. Yeah. So we now know that there's a lot of downstream effects because at the very top, we're not going to be doing things properly anymore. 
So once it's, it's a little bit, you know, once you mess with the top of the funnel, then let's, there's all kinds of things that can happen downstream. Um, so we were talking a little bit off air about a study that came out in 2018 in JAMA. So big deal, Mm -hmm. um, of almost 800,000 kids that were on TRICARE. So they were on, um, they basically just looked at data as to, okay, so if these kids were on a PPI, which is a reflux med or an antibiotic in the first six months of life, which I mean, those first couple of years are kind of important for the microbiome. If they're on that in the first six months, six, yeah, first six months of life, the uh, percentage or the likelihood of allergic diseases later on is really significant. What do you think is going on Mm -hmm. there? Good question. I think this is huge because I think exactly what you're seeing, how we handle things later on in life is so affected to how we kind of train our gut and what we do early on in life. Um, And so my theory there is really good. Again, not a lot. There's not as much data in the little kids. This is, this is why this study was so important. But we can extrapolate a little bit of the data that's in adults. So we do know that PPIs beyond obviously changing the acidity completely change the bacteria, good and bad, in your, um, in your digestive system. So it leads to increased risk of getting things like SIBO. This has all been shown in adults. We also have pretty good studies that say it also affects just that really important tight junction. So we want our bowels to be like a good cage, right? We only want to let in things that we need and we want to keep everything else out that we don't want in. And unfortunately, with a breakdown, and PBIs can do this, that, that gate gets a little laxed. You know, it starts being open when it shouldn't and you start absorbing things you shouldn't, which are antigens, inflammatory cell, all things that lead to you having an inflamed reaction to things you shouldn't, um, and ultimately can lead to allergies, because you're starting to be exposed to things regularly in a way that you normally shouldn't with your body, um, and have huge reactions, and then there you go, and then you start having allergies. Um, so I do want to talk about allergies and how that's tested, because this is a big discussion mm-hmm. topic with eczema mm-hmm. kids, but I have a question before we get to that point and your focus yeah. is pediatrics. And so you're seeing the kids, but do you ever ask questions about the parents and their digestive health? So Always. it makes, it makes a sense. Always. It makes sense if the kids stuff started after a round of antibiotics, right? Then we have a, like a quick, sure. clear, yeah. maybe starting point, but if it just started randomly or if it's always been like this or whatnot, you know, how, how is the parent's health implicated? And I've, I've paid attention a lot to what's going on in research and on, okay, can we see that they were transmitting this microbiome? I mean, so, so what are you seeing in practice? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of data on that. We don't have a lot, but certainly we know that early on when you're born and um, your mom, especially if you have a vaginal birth, that is a really important step in terms of developing your microbiome and giving you that good uh, immune defense. However, I, what I've noticed more is, and I think there's a little bit of, of how your body responds to your environment, there is a little bit of that that's genetic, right? And so certainly I always ask T, um, have you noticed you are upset or have issues with food allergy? Do you notice you get floating? Have you had asthma at some point? Do you ever have eczema at some point? Do you get rashes sometimes? And some of that is because, okay, maybe these people are sharing the same environment, right? Um, kind of what you cook for yourself, your, your kid is also getting. Mm-hmm. And then some of it too is a little bit of genetic. Like I always tell people, you know, you can have a you know, bad salad at your family picnic and everyone will eat it, but not everyone will get sick. Some will be really ill. Some will 
act as if they, nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And some people might have, you know, a little bit of an upset stomach. And that all varies based on kind of your, your predisposition, how you're going to respond to that. So I do think a little bit of that is also genetic mm-hmm. because that definitely trickles down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Or what's the current environment of the microbiome, right? Because if you already have mm-hmm. a lot of weeds and we add a bunch more with a little bit of food poisoning, those people may not recover as quickly. Yeah. So, so many things True. there. Good point. So when we're talking about allergies, are you seeing an increase in actual food allergies? Um, and to tie into that also... Uh, a, a common discussion point I see um, with kiddos with eczema is that sometimes a doctor will test for food allergies at a young age and sometimes they will not. So tell me what goes on to those decisions. Yeah, I always start with, so to me still ultimately, which is what you end up doing anyways, ultimately the gold standard is still an elimination diet. That's really where you're going to see if you get a benefit. So for the younger kids, and actually really I even do this with the older kids, I tend to start there um, just because maybe we'll get lucky, gives you an answer right away, gives the family a tool to start working on. And then if we're still having trouble, I move to food allergies testing. So mm-hmm. food allergy testing, I will do – my my rule of thumb is in terms of the immune system after the age of two, it's, you're pretty, it's pretty much been developed. So – Anytime after that, I trust the data. If I'm doing a food allergy test before that, I tell the family the caveat is this can change. Mm-hmm. We can work on it, it can get better. It can change over time. They might develop um, completely different allergies, and this testing might be completely different in the next six months mm-hmm. because, exactly like you mentioned earlier, you're still really growing that, that gut flora and that, and that microbiome. But in general, I always start with food elimination, and then I am seeing it way more but I also think it's because I'm learning to look for it more too because um, as I'm sure you've experienced too with your clients and patients people don't present all the same way right with with food allergies or food intolerance like yes sometimes it's eczema but sometimes it's not sometimes it's um, poor growth sometimes it's behavioral issues focus issues and you look and notice that there's issues in their stool and, and you, you uh, narrow it down. They're having certain responses of things they eat. Um, and so I don't always think it's so easy to find. So I actually always start with a very detailed um, diet analysis um, and food analysis with all my patients, regardless of their symptoms. Cool. That deserves a round of applause from this <laughs> dietitian. <laughs> Um, so that's cool. I, I like how you said it cause I had been hearing kind of three years old and I think it doesn't matter if it's two or three, this is around the time mm-hmm. that the microbiome starts becoming really established, right? For the rest exactly. of the life. Exactly. So it's interesting yeah. that we also see that at this point, that's when we think that food allergy testing is maybe a bit more, um, accurate, right? Accurate. And it's also interesting cause that's when, from a pediatric standpoint, that's when we officially can start diagnosing things like asthma. Mm. And stuff. We really don't even consider um, you're not allowed to diagnose until after that age anyways because all those things play such a role and kid, kids having wheezing earlier on might completely dissipate by the age of two. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's talk about the appropriate ways to test for food allergies because I get... Mm-hmm. I mean, I talk, I get to talk to the aftermath and it's all over the place. Some people are doing oh, blood okay. testing and some people are doing skin prick testing. And I know what I've yeah. seen in my research, but what's, I mean, what's, I, I trust you and your gold standard. So what should be, yeah. people be doing for different things? 
So I think it's much depends on what you're what you're specifically testing for and looking at. Specific things, some specific things do do better in a skin versus a blood. In general, I test blood because I actually want to look at both IgE and non-IgE, right? Like the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases says uh, food can actually be two types of allergies. You can have the IgE mediated and you can have a non-IgE and they can present in very similar, very different ways. And that mm-hmm. alters kind of how I treat and work with the family. So I do blood because I like to see both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and that helps me kind of design what we're going to do and move forward. Mm-hmm. So do you know if this is right or wrong? Um, when I had done research about this a while back, it was thought that blood was better for food for sure. And skin may be mm-hmm. better for environment. Is that accurate? Not accurate? Not sure. Good question. I I think you can make that general. Yeah, you can make that generalization. Certainly, some of the environment will still uh, show up in food. The thought is, is the environment is going to be really triggering more of like that histamine reaction in your allergies, mm-hmm. which is really that basis of that kind of redness you get when you prick somebody on their skin for the skin test. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why you're getting that. And when you're looking at the blood work, you're really looking at a more longer formed memory response to whatever the trigger is you're testing. Um, and so it's a slightly different mechanism really that you're testing for. So yeah, so skin, redness, histamine, definitely that's what triggers our environment, makes our eyes water too and, and makes us sneeze. And then the blood will test for things too that are more, um, takes longer for immune response that might trigger things such as like pretty bad long-term belly aches or that fogginess you get in your head. But so I, I think in general, I tend to do the blood work because of that. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about IgE versus non-IgE because mm-hmm. IgE is well-recognized. You know, this is, mm-hmm. this is what we use. This is what allergies use. So IgE as an elephant. And so that's what we think is exactly. reproducible. We can see that again and again. Mm-hmm. Like in theory, if you would do the same test over and over um, a year apart, you should get the same results technically as the thought process to my understanding. Um, that's how we always talk about it. But then non-IGE is all the other mechanisms technically. I call this sensitivities. Yeah. I think this changes yeah. based on what's going on in the immune system. What do you think? 100%. 100%. And that's ultimately the goal, right? That's the mm-hmm. goal is I tell my family, especially when you get it back, you're like, my goodness, there's you know, maybe six foods on here. The goal is to get to a point to heal your gut, to turn these off, but not not like a extreme IgE peanut allergy. You we're not making you eliminate these for life. This is just kind of exactly like you said. This is telling us a little bit about how your gut is working right now and how your body is working. And our ultimate goal is to fix that and heal that, so some of these things can be added back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so when we're, people are looking at their allergy test results, so actually their IgE test results um, to just be yeah. kind of standardized here, what's the range on the scale that they're looking at? And sometimes there's surprises like, oh, I'm only 0.34 to this. So do I avoid it? Do I not mm-hmm. avoid it? I don't notice symptoms. How do you handle that? Yeah. Um, ultimately, this is where it comes like into your individual individuality. So yeah, so the, the ranges... Um, on on the testing can all be a little different, but it definitely can be small changes from even just a half a point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and depending on the test, oftentimes it's one to almost four. I tell people uh, if, it, even if it's that small change, in general, anything from around one, I don't worry about too much. 
for the small changes, I say let's try it. Try taking it out for a week or two and see how you do. Because the ultimate answer is always you and the individual and, and how you respond. And so for some people, that small changes, even on the skin, might be big changes in the body. Mm-hmm. So I, I tend to try it. And then if you don't see anything, you it's okay. You can add it back in. It's going back to the whole elimination diet as, as always the gold standard. Mm-hmm. I think that um, success markers in kids include mood and sleep. And I'm pretty sure you feel yes. the same. So do you see yes. that shift a lot? Or do you have any stories about how that has, um, how you've been, how about how parents have been surprised that when food changes, mood changes? Mood is huge. Food, mood, excuse me, right? But yes, I, I have had, so I have a um, nine-year-old um, female. This is she was kind of a, um, an extreme case, had some behavioral issues to the point that she was actually briefly in the uh, children's hospital for a week on many medications to calm, to calm her down. Um, and she came to me, uh, also had extremely, extremely bad seasonal allergies. She kind of had the whole bucket. Um, and slowly, very slowly, uh, with doing different general allergy treatments, weaned her off all of her, I think she's on four antipsychotics. I've been working with her over Mm. a year now, and we have just finally completely eliminated um, gluten, and she is off all of her medication. She um, still has a little bit of allergies that come through that affect her behavior, but very mild. It's now completely controlled by um, just behavioral interventions when she gets upset with those small allergies. But in general, she's an extreme case, but I like to tell the extreme cases so people know that, like, all the range can happen. So mm-hmm. this is a kid that was literally on four antipsychotics and was had extreme allergies to gluten and some dairy, and when those were taken out, completely different child and yeah. is doing really well in school. Yeah, it's a good story to tell because, I mean, kids shouldn't have to be um... – I mean, we, they just deserve better, right? They deserve for us to do yeah. better for them. And yeah. I mean, that's a simple, some people might consider that to be an awful intervention. The audience to this show doesn't find that to be an awful. They find that to right. be, that's an acceptable <laughs> intervention. And so it's a great story yep. um, because, and it's, it's, I mean, it makes us sad that she had to live till nine years to see that. Right. But I, I see that a lot with even exactly. my eggs and my kids. Um, I've had some interesting things where like kids will get into certain things and their mood is crazy. I, I had a kiddo and then I ended up um, helping his grandma grandmother with issues as well. And I remember her saying to me, I have my grandson back. Like he is just a better, happier child now because mm-hmm. of correcting what was going on in his gut microbiome that ultimately affected how he tolerated foods. Um, so chicken and yes. egg situation. Um, so, I have a, so you were talking about bad seasonal allergies. We could talk about histamine and immune insult. But I think something I mm-hmm. sometimes hear is people say, I had this allergy testing done. And the and <laughs> I feel like all, I hear all these people. Um, they're like, the doctor says, oh, I've never seen anything like it. You're allergic to everything. Or um, or they just are. They're just, they react to everything. What's your opinion there? You think the immune system is just kind of totally inflamed? Yes, I to- Yes, I definitely do. I think when you're when you're one of those kids, and, and I've seen it too, where you're just literally turning positive across the board, I tell people that is way too hard to die, to kind of dig in. I don't think you're you're having an you're allergic to every food 
what I do think is happening is you're so inflamed. It's almost the way you think of what happens with an autoimmune disease, right? Your body gets angry at something and it essentially overreacts and starts responding to things it really shouldn't or normally doesn't. And so that is a huge ding, ding, you know, red flag to say, okay, we've got to calm this down first. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the kids that, yeah, you, that you start doing just really basic, basic calming, go back to your bone broth, um, diets and look at the environment and really just say, okay, we need to calm this inflammation down and then maybe consider retesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we don't think that those test results are necessarily accurate, right? We assume that there's no, no way you can be completely allergic. No to way. Yeah, definitely. Yes, I totally agree. Um, so let's talk about growing out of food allergies. Um, what does that look like and how common is it? I know it depends for the type of food. It definitely depends on the type of food. In general, the, the data says that for, for kids and with IgE-mediated kind of bad food allergies, um, it's about 20%. Um, those are the kids that we think about with, you know, that might have like an anaphylaxis reaction, um, maybe the, the kind that gets you in the hospital when they eat a food. That's about 20%. The data on other or maybe food intolerance, if you want to categorize that, is much, much stronger and higher um, because part of that is, is like I said, you're, you're healing how your body is responding, responding to the food. So you're much more likely to actually be able to reintroduce food when it's not an extreme allergy like that. Mm-hmm. Something I tell clients a lot is that, you know, IgE is really well recognized, right? I mean, we can pretty, practitioners Mm -hmm. agree about this. Not all practitioners agree about food intolerance and non-IgE mediated stuff. Would you agree with that still? Are we, are we, are we even the people to ask? Are we turning a corner? Because once you start surrounding yourself with people that have already turned the corner and are doing new things, and then you see people that are still kind of, you know, um, working in 1995, um, it's, mm-hmm. you know, you, you don't, you don't know what's most common. So what do you think is happening? I mean, do you think we're, we're starting to accept this more and more? I think so. I actually do think so. I still definitely, um, have some colleagues or some kids who will see their immunologist who will say, Oh, no, it can't be that. If you, if you don't have an anaphylaxis reaction, it's not a food allergy. But then at the same time, I absolutely have, have colleagues and immunologists um, and allergists who are starting to do this themselves. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're not there yet, but we're getting there. And I think you can't argue with, exactly like you said, with, which happened with your patients, you can't argue when you see that amazing difference in a child with these type of simple, safe interventions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things we want to make sure we talk about today, because you mentioned eliminating things a couple of times. So it is definitely yeah. our, our thought process for sure. When we have a significant allergy, the treatment is avoidance. Um, with other things, it might be a short-term avoidance, but as you mentioned earlier, we're trying to mm-hmm. heal things. Um, since we're dealing with kids and I think it depends, I think it's easier when you're two or three and you don't know the difference, um, if, if possible. It's different as we get mm-hmm. older, right? As with teenagers, how do we broach this topic? One with parents. So we're um, talking about this in a healthy way because our goal is not elimination long-term for a lot of things, right? We want to have Absolutely. the broadest diet. We want to have as many colors as possible. We want to, we don't want to be limited. And I do get the other end of the spectrum where people are like, oh, I started limiting and now I'm in a, this limited box um, and they don't know how to get out of it. Um, 
I'm not sure if you see that. And how? Do you, what are some steps you take to make sure that good food relationship is being considered and parents are like speaking positively about food, et cetera? Or is that something you counsel yeah. on? That's a really good question. And I think this is where, um, and you know, the saying, it takes a village comes into place. So early on, I talk, we talk about it, that yeah, this is just part of, of healing. And when I talk about elimination diets, I really focus on this is short term to mm-hmm. give us a, re- a way to find tools. But then I actually tend to work, um, not always, but often with a integrative or functional um, nutritionist or dietitian too with my families too to kind of go through too and say, okay, let's look at what's healthy because everything has to be right positive and we want to think mm-hmm. not in the, exactly like you said, early on we talk about elimination, but big picture, we don't want to think of taking away, right? We want to think of bringing good things, right? So um, early on for the preventative care before I have a kid coming in with an issue, and I'm just doing regular primary care visits, we spend a lot of time going around, okay, what is good food? What do we want to include? Um, what is this bringing to us? Like, why is this fat helping their brain? What is this vitamin A doing for, the, for their body? Um, so that early on, we're always thinking positively and how all these foods can possibly affect, affect mm-hmm. our bodies. Mm-hmm. I love it. If you could leave people with one kind of gut reaction on like, here's something you can do today to improve your children's health or, or whatnot, what would you leave them with? Mm, I think my, my biggest thing that I'm trying to work on, which is hard in teenagers, is breakfast really is the most important meal. Um, and if you can do a low glycemic breakfast index for your kids, it will be a huge difference in their focus and their outcomes throughout that day. There's really good data that even that simple change affects test scores. So um, my number one take home for all my families is like try to get that that good protein, non-sugary, um, healthy fat breakfast in before they're out the door. Makes mm-hmm. a big difference. Mm-hmm. What are your favorite? You know what people want to know is what you're feeding your kids for that then because they want yeah. some ideas. So tell us your what, what's okay. common in your house. Oh, I'm a huge avocado person. So. Um, I am also a realist and we're all running out the door, right? So I understand you. I am not creating these amazing breakfasts at four o'clock in the morning. So, um, we do a lot of smashed avocado with a little bit of spices on top or, um, or eggs out the door. Um, sometimes if we're really creative and have time to make our own kind of healthy granola bars over the weekend we'll do that. But that's my, that is my go-to breakfast. It's easy. I don't have to think about it. And everybody loves it. Hmm. That's what I had for breakfast an hour ago. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Um, Dr. Jacobs, where can people find you online? Yeah. So, um, you can, I'm at easy kids MD. That's my handle. I tell people easiest if you ever want to follow me on Instagram, just for quick tips or things. Um, and then I also update there, but on my website, I also keep a blog and also people are always welcome to reach out to me, reach out to my staff if they need help, um, with, with guidance or looking for different, um, nutrition or supplement questions, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to help in any way I can. 
Yeah. So I'm going to reiterate, it's AZ, like Arizona Kids MD. Yeah. So AZ, AZ which... like Arizona, or A to Z. Yes, <laughs> there you it's go. A and then Z, but yeah. Exactly. Okay, cool. I love that. And um, that will be, definitely be in the show notes. I actually looked at Dr. Jacob's blog last night or this morning, and it's great. You should definitely go check it out. So um, that's Thanks. not that's Thanks. not always a recommendation. I have to give it this book. I'm like, oh, there's lots <laughs> of good stuff here, or questions I hear all the time. So definitely go check that out at AZ Kids md.com. Thanks so much for coming on today. I hope that people will respond and give us other ideas that they'd love to hear back from you and we can have you back. I would love it. If anyone has any good insights or has questions, I'm happy to. Okay. I'd love to come back. Thank you so much. One of the best gifts you could give us at the less stress life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review in the iTunes store or from your podcast app. Just search for less stress life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews and write a review while you're there. Hey, make sure you hit subscribe for Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 